you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm chapter 14. As has been normal now for over a year, we have paused on Communion Sundays to direct the, the service to end in our covenant meal together. And we've used that pause to reflect on a different psalm, which are fitting texts for the liturgy of corporate worship and specifically the Lord's Supper. And our psalm today is seven verses long. So if you have your Bibles open or looking on some other device, look there with me. We'll talk about the text together. But let me start by reading it for us. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us this morning to receive it, to let it form us, and to direct us to see the beauty of your presence among us, exemplified by our participation and celebration of the Lord's table. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, as Ed mentioned, we leave for Scotland tomorrow. I purposefully planned to have me on an aisle seat and my son Jacob on the window seat just to see who gets to sit between us. No, that's not true. They made us sit on opposite sides of the plane. But the reality is, is we're going to have a, we're excited for our trip to Scotland and my kids are excited, really not knowing exactly what they're going to experience because our oldest was coming on six months when we left, so he doesn't remember a lick of it. Uh, But the reality is, is it's going to be fun and they've been prepping, so there's been lots of Scottish bagpipes playing every morning. And last night, we as a family watched the movie Chariots of Fire. And if you haven't seen it, you're too bad I'm going to ruin the plot because it's literally over 40 years old. But it's this beautiful movie of the story of of a man named Eric Little, who is Scottish, but he was born to missionary parents in an Asian country and Literally, most of his growing up years were there, but he ended up coming back to Scotland. He's a true Scot uh, by nationality. And he just lived a life of excellence. 
the story is about a couple years around the 1924 Olympics where this Scotsman who was gifted with speed uh, ran in such a way to bring honor to his nation, Great Britain. But more than that, because of his convictions, brought honor to his God. He specifically was, is what's called a Sabbatarian. A Sabbatarian is somebody who thinks that one particular Christian application of Sunday is that you can do no work. And running in a race in the Olympics would be considered work. So when the, the preliminary runs for him in the 100 and the 200 were on a Sunday, he would not run. Even though he sat before the King of England and all the Olympic committee and was challenged to be, for letting down his own kingdom, he said he is, there is a kingdom above this and a king above all other kings that he serves first. Now, what's interesting in the movie, and my kids didn't like me bringing it up halfway through, but there's this beautiful comparison in the movie. If you haven't seen it, it's like $2 on Amazon Prime to rent. It's really a comparison of two characters, like the prodigal son is really about two sons older and the younger brother. So the story of Chariots of Fire is about two runners. The one is Eric Little that we know of, and the other is a guy named Harold Abrams, who literally is trying to make it in the world. He's feeling like he's a bit set back because he's of Jewish birth, but he goes to arguably the greatest university on the planet called Cambridge to become a fully successful Englishman in every way. And he will stop at nothing to have his success. And the comparison is beautiful. The movie literally spends five to eight minutes flipping between these two characters. One who is doing anything he can to win. Getting a coach and a trainer outside of the amateur rules, hiding him in secret, making his whole life about succeeding in this race. And another, Eric Little, who actually is running another race altogether, who has to convince his sister, the good pietist that she is, that it's okay for a Christian to be involved in such worldly activities, that he runs for the glory of God. Harold Abrams wins his race at the end of the film, the 100 meter dash, and the movie portrays it beautifully. He leaves overwhelmed at the emptiness of the victory. In fact, I can only imagine a a student of film or literature or something would love the camera. It focuses on Abram's face and all that's behind him is black. And he sits alone in a pub long after its owner is trying to close the door, having a pint with him and his coach feeling empty after he won the pinnacle of what he was pursuing. And then there's Eric Little, who simply runs for the glory of God. And the kingdoms of this world are not what he bends a knee to. And as it briefly mentioned at the end of the film, and I've read elsewhere after the Olympics, shortly after he goes back to China serves there, actually dies in a concentration camp later years, doesn't live a full life in any scale of the definition. The movie wants you to think of two characters. One who absolutely aligns his life with God. And one 
who says in his heart, I am God. And the different results that they produce, even though they're both fast. And in one sense, they both win, but not in the fullest sense. So you read verse 1 in Psalm 14 and you hear this harsh language. Jesus actually warned us not to use this language, but God can use it if he wants to. I guess sometimes it's fitting. If you deny who God is, you are a fool. There's just no other way to describe you. You're not just mildly off. You're not just limping. You're clueless. You're disconnected from the most important reality. And in this seven verse chapter, the Lord gives us his perspective and his interpretation of what we could describe as humanity's heart condition. Look at that first verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And notice the result of this. We haven't even gotten to verse 2, and then it just goes from their philosophy of life, their theology of the world, to their practices. They are corrupt Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Verse 1 gives us an interesting perspective on the philosophical position of atheism. While philosophy classes might say that atheism or agnosticism or some other variation is a viable position, the Bible doesn't give much room for atheism. The Bible doesn't view atheism as a viable conviction It doesn't see it as a reasonable system of belief, or I guess you'd have to say system of disbelief. Throughout the Bible, a denial of God is an irresponsible gesture of defiance. Did you hear that? Like if you're denying God, you're defying God. It's not like an option you get to choose. My position is atheism, not an option. Creatures cannot deny creator. It's just not allowed. Is disallowed. So the first thing that we see in this text is that humanity, especially in these first three verses, that humanity dismisses God's law and lives in a way that ignores God. This is the human condition. Arguably, this is the fruit of the fall in Genesis 3, and it's ugly. We have been so separated from our Creator that we deny Him. We say there's no God. Our lives are completely in decay. Look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Verse 3 is hard to read. It talks about us too. Not just about the them, but about the us. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You may may not note this, or it may not come to mind, but if you've read the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul actually uses Psalm 14, both in chapter 1 to describe the human condition, and in chapter 3 to describe the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let let me read you some bits from Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Notice that verse 2 in Psalm 14 talked about heaven against all, unga- all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, get this, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Where do you think Paul is getting that? Psalm 14. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Again, that's just verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. They don't do good. Romans 1.28 describes that. That is the way of the fool. But then by the time you get to Romans 3, there's something beautiful that is described. After quoting literally verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 14, the Apostle Paul says this. You might recognize some of these verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's verse 2 in Psalm 14. That's talking about us. But I love the next verse in Romans 3. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Meaning, the Apostle Paul thought that Psalm 1, or so sorry, Psalm 14, not only described beautifully the condition we see of our world, of this self-focused, godless behavior, the life of not the wise, but the fool, but it also described who we used to be, church, who we were without Christ, and in contrast to what we've now become because of the grace of Jesus Christ. A second thing that Psalm 14 talks about is not just God's law, but God's justice. Humanity rejects God's justice, I summarized the last half of the chapter, and acts in a way that denies God. Here, and starting in verse 4, the psalmist gets more practical. He turns to the outcome of an intentional ignorance of God. Injustice. Look at verse 4. I love the question that the psalmist frames. Do all these evildoers know nothing? Like, do they even even know what they're doing? Look at the end of verse 4. They devour my people as though eating bread. What the psalmist is saying is that humanity's injustice against one another, against other people, has become so normalized and regular that it's just like eating a sandwich. That's how corrupt our people in our world have become. They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. And then you get this interesting verse 5. It's hard to know what to do with. It it, it even starts with that weird way. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. Wait a second. They're ignoring you, and evil is par for the course, like eating a sandwich. But somehow there's a disconnect that they themselves can feel. And the only solution is this. For God... This is the end of verse 5. For God is present in the company of the righteous. 
Verse 5 adds a strange twist to what seems like the happy-go-lucky nature of the fool who denies God. While they ignore God by their evil deeds, they cannot escape a feeling of dread as they engage with the company of the righteous. Or we might say, now in light of God's progressive revelation, as they engage with God's people, the church. Because God is present with his people, that's the language there in end of verse 5, their mistreatment of others, and especially the church, begins a kind of process of judgment, even if it only begins with a feeling of dread, like something is off in these creatures who have been in violation of the Creator. I love the way that God describes the people of God in the midst of this. Notice verse 4, they devour my people. Notice how he claims us as his own. Verse 5, God is present in the company of the righteous. Verse 6, the Lord is their refuge. And verse 7, when the Lord restores his people, let all his people rejoice. Humanity dismisses God's law and lives in a way that ignores God. And humanity has rejected God's justice and acts in a way that denies God. And we, the church, are living in the midst of that. So how can we respond? Like, how how can God's assessment of the sinful heart condition of the world teach us? Two things I think are worth noting. Here's the first. Christians can be realistically hopeless. That's right. Christians can be realistically hopeless about the world, and yet entirely hopeful in what God will do in Christ. You may not have heard one of the eschatological positions called post-millennialism, which believes that the world is just going to progress, the church's influence is going to spread, and all things are going to be uh, resolved. I'm not a post-millennialist. I think it actually there is a sense of realistic hopelessness, that the world is not going to be repaired by our hands but a hopefulness in the fact that God himself will come. And end of our text, verse 7. The Lord will restore his people. Salvation will come out of Zion. Verse 7 aims our hope toward the future redemption of the world and therefore the future redeemer. Such a hope we are taught to pray by Jesus himself. Remember what he said, your kingdom come. Not these kingdoms. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's that sense of realistic, hopeless, and yet still hopeful in the redemption of all things and the work of God. But, but here's another takeaway, and this one is just more on the ground, on the, in our lives. By the grace of God, Christians should live not as the fool described in this text, but as the follower of Jesus Christ. Like if this is how the fool lives, if this is how the one who rejects God lives, the church and the Christians should look the reverse. The church should obey the law of God and live in the full acknowledgement of his kingship. And the church should pursue justice and goodness and act in ways that reflect the love of God a love of neighbor, and a love of one another. Where goodness and mercy are like eating a sandwich. 
in the church. It's the way we exist. Because we know who God is. Again, look at the contrast of those two runners in the chariots of fire. Look at the one who lived for himself. Oh, he was fast. But he cheated. And he lied. And he pursued self-gain. And it was empty. And look at the fastest man in England in 1924 who did not run the 100 or the 200. Instead, he ran the 400, which was not his best race. Simply because he knew who was king. And based on his convictions and his allegiance to the king of kings, he would go directly against the king of his own England. Because he's not a fool. He's the father of Jesus Christ. What's that look like in our world today? Maybe, maybe our response to Psalm 14 just begins with saying, Lord, I, want, I don't want to live a life that doesn't acknowledge you as God. I understand that atheism and agnosticism and other things might be philosophical positions, but as a Christian, I just want to make sure that my life is fully subsumed under the reality that you are God and I am not. And help me not to live like the fool. Help me to live like the follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe even as we approach the table soon, when we read verse 2 in Psalm 14, that God saw no one who would seek Him. No one who understood. Verse 3, all had turned away. All had become corrupt. Or as Paul said in Romans 3, all sinned and fell short of the glory of God then we can be blown away with gratitude when we realize that the same God who saw nothing in us freely justifies us by His grace through the redemption that comes by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Gospel and how Psalm 14 sets us up to see the Gospel. And to see our own sinful condition and the gracious redemption that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Romans fleshed out the reality of Psalm 14 for us, the church. And how our celebration of the Lord's Supper today is an acknowledgement of that reality. Lord, we, we come to you today because we know that we are tempted in small ways, to live like the fool, to deny the centrality of you, God, over all things in our lives. Help us. Help us to not be the fool, but to be the follower of Jesus Christ. And to acknowledge you, God, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as our King and as our Lord, just as you are our Savior. Thank you for the ministry of your word, which reminds us of who we were and directs us to see who we are now and lovingly exhorts us to live faithfully in that truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.